What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of West Coast Bias, Season 5, Episode 2. Um, today we're going to be doing a podcast we talked about for a while, um, good quarantine-type podcast. We're going to count down um, for our top five or six sports moments that we have seen live. And um, just just in terms of live, we, we mean that in terms of watching on a television or in person. Um, I suppose it could mean radio, just something we heard or were part of when it happened, the moment it happened, not something that we had to go back on listening. Um, I will give a personal disclaimer. Um, there was some moments that I wanted to include um, that I didn't because they were more full games or seasons even, um, in the case of Leicester City's season. Um, and I, I pretty much restricted mine to moments. Um, that's just how I was thinking about it. There's a few that I'll mention, honorable mention, that, that were you know longer stretches or quarters or periods of games. Um, yeah, do you have any other comments before we get going? Uh, just that there's going to be, I think, uh, three real categories here. There's going to be uh, championship-level events. Yeah. There's going to be uh, individual games that stick out to us uh, that are maybe less significant. And then there's going to be games that we're a little bit biased on and that are uh, maybe have a more personal appeal to us because we're fans of those teams. Yes, and my list is, is definitely a combination of um, personal appeal, just kind of shock value in the moment, significance, um, so I tried to combine those three, but I think you're right. There's definitely a, a, a few categories that will be separate. Um, another disclaimer, we, at least for me, my earliest moment, as you guys will see, was 2011. Um, so there's not going to be anything from that, any, anything earlier than that on my end. I'm not sure yet. We'll, we'll, we'll wait and see for Hunter's List. But um, for me, these moments will go from 2011 to present. Um, I'll start. Um, I'm going to start with... I'm gonna do six because I had my my fifth one I couldn't I couldn't decide and I'm gonna go my top six my sixth moment is um, Arike Agbun Gawales of Notre Dame um, the two shots she hit in 2018 um, both against I think previously undefeated UConn in the Final Four which was a buzzer beater game winner and then the national championship buzzer beater game winner against Mississippi State uh, in the national championship which just on a you know, purely sporting level, I think could you could really make a case for this is one of the greatest individual sporting achievements ever. Like just in terms of a, a week stretch, um, or maybe even I guess it would be a probably three or four day stretch at, at, at that Friday, point. Yeah. Um, hitting two buzzer beaters on literally the biggest stage you can have. Um, the only reason why this isn't higher is because I personally didn't didn't mean a lot to me. It was just really cool to watch. Um, but both three-pointers, both fading away under pressure, both right in front of her own bench, I believe. Um, yeah. And I did – I don't watch a lot of women's basketball, but I did I – was, I was friends with the Mississippi State fan at the time, and I watched both of these live in, in a bar, and they were both um, extremely entertaining and kind of, you know, one of those moments where you can't really believe it's happening. Um, and definitely I think one of the one of the – biggest women's sports moments that stands out to me that I've watched. And I, I try to watch as many women's sports as I can, but I think that's probably the biggest moment, um, certainly as a neutral that I've ever seen. Yeah, so I uh, don't really watch too much professional women's basketball, but every year I watch a lot of the tournament, and I watch regular season games of the elite teams. And I had seen a lot of that UConn team, and a good amount of that Mississippi State team, but I had not seen a single game from Notre Dame until the Final Four. So I was kind of rooting against UConn passively. Uh, I've always uh, liked Brianna Stewart a lot, who was on that team, but kind of rooting against history with them because I'm just tired of it. So I greatly enjoyed the first shot, and the second game I just absolutely bandwagoning, excited to see it happen, excited to see it happen the way it did. That's what you want to see, is you want to see the stars of a game do something truly crazy, and that's what you got. That was also just outside of my top ten. I think I would have had it around seven. Um, okay, you want to go with your fifth or sixth or whatever you, you had? Yeah. So my fifth is very personal to me. Uh, really no significance yet. This is about somebody who wasn't even, uh, isn't even technically an all-star in their game yet. But I think the third or fourth best player in all of baseball last year was a rookie who only played 81 games on San Diego Padres named Fernando Tatis Jr. He starts at shortstop for them. He starts next to a third baseman who used to be the best shortstop in the league and is now a third baseman in uh, Manny Machado. 
He is better than Manny Machado at everything, which is Manny Machado is all-star level at everything, so keep that in mind, except for maybe speed, and that he's not a very fast man. Uh, I saw his first game live. I had been watching him since 2016, no, 2017. Uh, he was a deadline acquisition for James Shields, who was terrible as a Padre. Uh, he was effectively a salary dump at the time, we thought, when he was moved to the White Sox. But the White Sox gave up an interesting 19-year-old, pro- uh, 17-year-old prospect in Tatis. Tatis came back to the Padres and within two months was the most interesting player in the system. By the end of that year was a elite prospect. By the end of the next year was the number one or number two, depending on who you ask, prospect in baseball. Made his debut a year earlier than expected in 2019. Uh, he was supposed to be a guy who was brought on late in the season for contract control reasons. Uh, much to his credit, GM AJ Preller said to uh, both him and Chris Paddock, who also had an excellent training camp that year, we're not going to play those games with you. We'll just give you early extensions. We want you on this team for 20 years. Brought them both in to debut uh Opening day debut for Tatis, Paddock debuted three days later. Both had superstar caliber seasons, although neither were voted all-stars, which is a damn shame. Uh, Immediately, uh, uh, already Chris Paddock is talked about as a true number one pitcher, and uh, Tatis is talked about as a star of the game. He is the best player on this Padres team by far. He hit uh, low 300s as a rookie. He was on pace for what would have been a 50 home run, 50 steal season had he played 82 games. And I got to see his first at-bat from uh, the second row of the third base line. Uh, went there with a uh, friend of the podcast, Steven Zetterberg, and his brother and dad. Uh, dropped uh, my barbecue on the floor right before Tatis' first at-bat, but couldn't do anything about it for an inning because I had to see it. Uh, uh, he had a single down the right side. Pretty excellent. Got a Shout photo. Uh, came in the batter's box next to uh, one-for-one career batting average, 1.0. So, uh, uh, someday printout. Uh, and put next to the uh, giveaway hat I got from that game. Definitely the most memorable in-person experience I've had, and it'll be a, a damn shame if uh, Tatis doesn't bring out to be a star who wins multiple World Series. Yeah, well, I think there's certainly value on this list of putting something that was in person for. Um, I think, especially with baseball, I, I thought about for a very short amount of time, but I thought I, I watched, uh, I think it was in 2008 or 09, I watched uh, Ichiro hit a eighth inning bottom of the eighth inning go ahead grand slam uh, against the red Sox in seattle which I, I really was excited about and i didn't end up putting on the in on, on there but there is definitely a certain thing about baseball where there's moments that are just you know it's, i think it's it's really the difference between baseball at its worst and baseball it's baseball at its best is really high um you know there, there's you go 162 games where you know the majority of the stadium is just silent and then occasionally you'll have a great moment for a great player and monumentous occasion or something like you're saying a potential future star um then you hit the playoffs and i think the variance in baseball is is what makes the the best moments the more significant almost yeah that's that's the excitement of it is the moment where it all just erupts at once right that's what's so exciting about meaningful baseball with the beginning of the game it's just it's kind of like uh Kind of like watching a thriller that's a little bit of a slow burn where you're wondering, what's happening here? What are we building to? And usually it doesn't build to anything, but the games where it does are really special. Uh, one of my favorites that I definitely couldn't put on this list because it's truly meaningless, one of my favorite baseball games ever was a Mariners game last year that I went to because I had a free day while I was in Seattle. They were playing the Tigers. Both teams were well out of their respective playoff races. I went because I wanted to see Miguel Cabrera uh, as a washed-up future Hall of Famer, and I wanted to see this Mariners team that hit a lot of home runs. Uh, the Mariners had a rookie shortstop that year uh, who's uh, it hit a game-winner two days before that, uh, a game-winning hit two days before that, and I was moderately interested to see what he could do. He also had an insane throw uh, earlier that week, so it was exciting to see somebody in that moment, and he hit a uh, walk-off in the 10th inning with the entire stadium chanting his name uh, in a meaningless game where I sat next to a stranger who had seen every Best Picture movie, and we spent the seventh inning talking about who we thought was going to be the... Uh, lead actor nominees that year in the Oscars so sports it's a great baseball experience not so much a great live sports experience yeah and I will I will preface this list before we go any further saying that I, w- I couldn't find a way to include a live moment on here um but if I was to include one it would have been that either that Ichiro Grand Slam or uh the first Damian Lillard game winner against uh Anthony Davis's Pelicans in 2013 um, which I was in the stadium for. So those would be my two. Um, my fifth on my list is um, Euro 2016, um, Portugal versus France, uh, Eder goal. And 
this was in, I believe, something like the 115th minute, something like that. Um, really, really bad championship game. Everyone assumed France was going to win. France was the better team. Portugal had made it through. Um, I think they had won two penalty kick shootouts on the way. They had scored a total of about three goals in the tournament, and Ronaldo had really scored all of them. Um, this is a Portugal team that was bounced out by the U.S. in the World Cup two years prior. Yeah, and this is also, if you're making the Messi-Ronaldo argument, this is where you start to lean Ronaldo. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I think it's kind of, you know, pointless I'm to discuss. I'm of the opinion that neither of them have a crowning international achievement because Ronaldo had a great tournament, but he wasn't the reason this game was won. It was, he wasn't the reason the game was won, but he was the reason the tournament was won. And the, the reason why this makes my list is not because of the actual goal. It's because of how what happened to Ronaldo in the first part of the game. Um, he got injured, I think, the really dirty tackle in about the 10th minute of the game. Um, kind of made a show of coming, as he tends to do, going on and off the field. Um, and at the beginning, I think we all thought he was just kind of play acting like he always does. Um, and about the around the second time he came on and off the field, it was, became clear that he was legitimately injured and couldn't, wasn't going to be able to play the rest of the game. But I think he ended up playing until about the 27th minute um, before he kind of finally came off, um, just sobbing like a complete meltdown. Um, I think everyone kind of assumed France was going to win. Um, and then for the rest of the game, Ronaldo pretty much just you know hobbled up and down the sideline like a coach, just shouting at his team. Um, just, you know, he's one of the most incredible sideline visuals I think I've ever seen in sports. And whatever you think of Ronaldo, I don't think that kind of, you know, demonstrated for a lot of people that, you know, he cared a little more than, you know, people ever thought he did. Um, and when that goal went in and the, the post-match celebrations was just kind of insane. Um, and, a part, and then, of course, it was, you know, three minutes left of stoppage or of extra time of a, a European championship final. Uh, it was the underdog. It was obviously in France which was um, huge. Um, yeah, I think it's the only time I've really been really excited f for Ronaldo and, and one of the few times in the world I've really rooted for a superstar to really kind of show that they're a superstar. And kind of, he, I think that was probably his highest approval rate he's ever had was, was during that, that five to 25 minutes um, after that goal was scored. That's going to be a really interesting legacy, I think, that rivalry because... So much of it was played out in Clásicos that were the only significant game in the year for either of those players. Uh, obviously, Madrid had some pretty excellent runs in Champions League, and Barcelona had good runs as well. But it never really... Not, none of those Madrid teams really impressed me so much as it seemed like they were always surviving. And uh, the first championship game get that Messi was much better of the two. Uh, but I was never really struck by moments where those guys were particularly great outside of those classicos against each other so it seems like it's a rivalry that's built so much on the play that they had against lesser opponents that i really never really bought into either of them as great all-time greats in the way that i would with like a lebron james or a michael jordan uh they're the most talented players in the sport ever but they didn't really have those superstar moments so uh, ronaldo having that moment in a championship game in your euro championship game is really worth something yeah, it's interesting because I, I think that may have been true, especially for Ronaldo early in, earlier in his career. But as he got older, he he scored two huge goals in two straight Champions League finals um, and then had that moment with Portugal. So, you know, and, and Messi's had a few too. And I think that it's, there were certainly, especially in the league they play in, and this might be getting off topic a little bit, but, you know, they're a little the the flat track bully mentality, but especially later in both of their careers, I think Messi's really failed with Argentina in pretty spectacular ways. Um, right. Well, which it, America, just right. And, and, and I think if we're doing the better player debate, I think it's, it's, it's just, it is messy, but I think if who's done more to win things in big moments, I think it's kind of inarguably Ronaldo right now. And I think that'll continue to be the case. And that's especially because Messi's had some really notable failures um, like that penalty kick miss against Chile and Copa America. He's he's had some really bad moments. Argentina has been a really talented team, so I, that can't really be an argument. Um, Ronaldo's taken a notably worse Portugal team to a, a Euro championship. Um, Although, but, should be said, 26, uh, 2016, 2014 Argentina, pretty impressive performance by Messi. Uh, I believe he won Golden Boot that year, that year and uh, lost to the semifinals. Yeah. No, Messi, Messi's, Messi's been close, but for the... Um, 2014, they actually lost in the finals to Germany and the famous Mario Goetze goal. But, um, 
yeah, I don't think it's 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 not quite the Jordan LeBron debate in that they're much closer than that, and I don't. It's I'm fine with either. Um, but yeah, that that's my that's my number five moment was just that that Ronaldo that Ronaldo reaction and the Edair goal. And I think if we're since we're talking about this specific goal, I think it's important to mention that Edair it was a bench player. He's about a thirty year old bench player for a, the fifteenth best team in England at the time. Um, Portugal has had no attacking options and. They, they brought him on and scored the by far the biggest goal he's ever scored in his entire life and it was about kind of 40 yards out just kind of a you know it was a well hit shot but essentially just a slow roller into the bottom corner um and again against again in france against a team that was much much more talented what's your what's your fifth one so my fifth selection uh was the one i had already mentioned uh tatis my uh, fourth, however, is something that's probably not going to be as relatable to most people here. Uh, it's the 2012 Indianapolis 500. Uh, it's the first race for uh, the first Indianapolis 500 for the current generation of IndyCar, which races notably spectacularly at that track. Uh, it's, of course, the, uh, my opinion, the biggest auto race in the world, inarguably one of the top two. It's that of them all. Uh, anybody who tells you otherwise is a Mark who has uh, listened far too much to either NASCAR or Formula One's marketing because there are only two great races in the world. This one was between uh, uh, Dario Franchitti, who had already won two Indianapolis 500s at this point, and Takuma Sato, who hadn't won anything at any level in uh, IndyCar and had been there for three years at this point. He was a very reckless driver, known mostly for being fast and reckless and getting in people's ways. And he had run well all month with a second Ray Hall Letterman entry nobody had taken seriously. Franchitti was the reigning champion of the series and was coming into this race as the heavy favorite. Uh, going into the last corner, uh, they had passed each other three times six laps before this. Going into the last corner, uh, he easily could have had the opportunity. Uh, in the first corner of the final lap, he could have had the opportunity to wait another two corners and pass him to turn three, but he chose not to. Uh, Takuma Sato came in too deep, uh, lost control, somehow wrecked himself without wrecking Frankiti, and Frankiti wins under caution uh, at the end of this race, with Sato somehow only creating a single car wreck and finishing, I think, 12th or 13th or actually probably was qualified as a DNF. But Sato would go on to win in 2017, and this would be Frankie's last win because he would have a career-ending injury at the end of 2013. But it was a crowning moment for who was at the time the biggest name in IndyCar, uh, probably the best auto race I've ever seen, certainly the best one I've ever seen live. Yeah, I mean, I have nothing to add on this because I don't watch the sport, but... Um... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, I think... Frank Keaty was a career journeyman in Europe who came to uh, came to the U.S. in the early 2000s, effectively established his career, was incredibly successful, won a, race, won a 500, won a championship, moved to NASCAR, failed miserably in NASCAR, moved back to IndyCar with a different team. Uh, tremendous, tremendous success, and unfortunately his career was cut short. Uh, he's uh, now a television commentator, but very brief window, he was an absolute star. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, What's your fourth? So my fourth is the kick six, um, which oh, I... Oh, my God. Upon... Okay, everything I just told you was my fifth and sixth. i got to make some adjustments. <laughs> That's fine. I, I put six on there so you can stick this in wherever it can go. Uh, but we'll discuss it now regardless. Kick six, I can't believe, first of all, I've, I rewatched all these these top these top five today. Um, it took just a, f- a few notes on, on specific elements of these that I wanted to mention just so we could have some... Discussion besides, oh, wow, that was an amazing moment. Um, the kick six, 2013, first of all, which I was stunned by. I would have put that about 2015. Um, uh, the kick six, obviously, Iron Bowl 2013, Auburn versus Alabama. Um, I'm not sure if either team was particularly dominant that year. Um, Alabama was Alabama so much better than Auburn. But yes, it wasn't yes. Funny. But yes, Alabama was far better than Auburn. This is in um, Auburn, of course. Um that was the best of the uh, of the AJ Smith uh, Auburn teams by far. Yeah, uh, this this was the game uh, before the uh, Vernon not the Vernon Quest. Uh, uh, what's what's his name? The, the guy who was uh, you know, never mind. The cre- the creeper up. guy. Yes. Very famous uh, commentator. Yeah. Was on an episode of Happy Probably the most famous commentator of our lifetimes. In the league, for that matter. Um, yeah, I can't think of his name either, but I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, yeah. I, 
it's I think one of the most interesting things about this. What's that? There we go. Brent Musburger. There you go. Brent Musburger. Brent Musburger yeah. talked about the Alabama quarterback's girlfriend. That's right. That's right. Um, I think that was what was that? AJ McCarron. Yes, AJ McCarron. Yeah. Right. So so that was to give some context to this to start. I think that this was the the week after Auburn won a game, or one or two weeks after Auburn won a game on a pass over a middle over the middle, which was tipped. Um, there was a collision at, between the guy who I believe the pass was intended for and the cornerback. Um, yes. And it was tipped off that, bounced off straight into the hands of, a, I think, a different receiver. It was either the same receiver or, or a different receiver who then ran it in for the touchdown. I think receiver, yeah. I want to say it was against Florida. I'm not 100% on that. It was against Georgia. Georgia. Um, so I think and that was. Both these games were at home. Yeah, and I think so. I think that was some somewhere in the one to three week timeline right before this. Um, the, in, in the actual in the actual game, um, the what led to the Saban field goal, which was attempt, which was actually, you know, pretty roundly criticized in the moment um, as the kick was going. No one, it was, it was a freshman kicker who was there. Um, the play was only made possible because a Bama receiver managed to make an incredible play to keep his to make the catch and get his foot and down foot, foot down inbounds. Um, with one second on the clock, which was reviewed for, I think, a good 10 to 15 minutes before they came to the conclusion that he had actually gotten his foot down and was in bounds and there was enough time on the clock. Um, there's a lot of commentary. I think this is a Vern Lundquist game um, about how this kick was probably not the right decision. Um, there's a great moment by the color guy um, as, I think, either prior or as the kick's going up where he goes, uh, there's all fat guys on the field for Bama. Um there's the the great shot of just just the way that the field goals are shot from behind the goalposts um, that they continued for most of the run back by Chris Davis, um, where you can see the 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 field as kind of a the, the long ways and and you can see the the Auburn crowd in the end zone um, as he's running towards it. Um, I will th- I will say it's it's interesting because as he's running this back, first of all, he almost steps out of bounds, obviously, but then he also almost gets tripped by one of his own players about the ten yard line, um, the Alabama ten, um, and then yeah, I mean just the field rush after that, um, just the shot of the return towards the Auburn fans just going crazy as he's about the five yard line, um, and the shot of Nick Saban right after the play just being like you know you can tell he's knows he made a mistake and just an insane moment. And in one of the one of the few moments on this list where it's like, the, the before the play actually happened, you're like, you know, it's very unlikely this guy's going to return it, but there's a lot of stuff that's set up to make this potentially possible, like you know, having all the the offensive linemen on the field to make sure the kick doesn't get blocked, and um, the returners waiting in the end zone. I think he he may have had some similar, not maybe not a kick return play, but I think he was a pretty prolific kick returner. Um, was well, a kick return in the NFL for three years with the Chargers after this. Yeah, just a really epic moment. Another one of those where I was rooting for Auburn, but I was, you know, essentially neutral. So um, one of the, you just couldn't believe it when it happened. You know, Iron Bowl, obviously the greatest rivalry in college football, really, I would say. Um, can't really Probably do much the greatest better. rivalry that repeats every year in U.S. sports. Yeah. I mean, unless the Lakers and Celtics go to another 10 finals. Yeah. Anything to add on I, that one? Uh, there's a few more things about this, which is actually a number two for me. Uh, first of all, as uh, I already mentioned, this is, I think, the best Alabama team under A.J. McCarron's tenure, which if you know is he lost three games total as a starter, and then he became a journeyman NFL player and opened the sushi restaurant. But Super hot he was not a good player, but those teams were absolutely iconic, just top to bottom, packed with high-level talent. No real superstars. There's, uh, I don't believe, I believe this was before Derrick Henry. And uh, I don't think there was a Heisman Trophy winner on any of those teams, but they were just packed with talent. They seemed truly unbeatable. This is before Clemson really rose as a rival to Alabama, uh, well before LSU was a real rival to Alabama. Uh, this was the window began really with the LSU Alabama team uh, game where they played nine to three or nine to six in overtime, uh, and Alabama won the rematch in the championship game. So this was a team that seemed unbeatable. The week before, Auburn beat a good, not great, I believe they were 12th or so, Georgia team at Jordan-Hare. The play is the prayer at Jordan-Hare is what they called it. They had already named that play, decided the team was destined for greatness, and then 
this happened and it was just so narratively concise and perfect and it didn't even matter that they lost the championship to goddamn Jameis Winston uh, later that year uh, in another great game that doesn't crack my list at the Rose Bowl, the last BCS championship game. It was still just, when I think about college football, I think about that moment, I think about that radio call, I think about like specifically the Auburn's going to win the football game, they're not going to keep them off the field tonight. Uh, before anyone started rushing the field, by the way, that, that's what he said. Uh, and the main thing that I think about more than any of the rest of that is, first of all, Chris Davis, only notable for that play. He's one of the only heroes, true college hero, one-play heroes I can think of. Probably the 15th best player on that team, but if anybody remembers that team, they remember him more than anyone else. And second of all, uh, the thing that really sticks with me is that this is the first moment where I really remember the internet all being one towards something. Uh, this was four or five years into Twitter's existence, but it was really the peak of uh, Twitter as the place to ex for experiential live moments. And this was one of the better ones. Right before the kick went off, a friend of mine who's uh, basically had been on and off Twitter every three months for two years said, uh, if this gets returned, I will reactivate my account and not delete it. And of course it was returned. He was the only person I thought predict that. And true to his word, he hasn't deleted his account since. So that's something. Yeah, really just but one of those you remember where you were, no matter who you are. Um, say what you will exactly. about the South, but they know how to do sports rivalries and especially college football. There's not really a whole lot better than that rivalry. And that was a pretty amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, have you given your number four yet? You need your number four, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, my new number four, uh, as of moving things down, is uh, also 2013. Uh, this one's admittedly, uh, actually, it's the 2013 14 season, so the end of 2014. This is admittedly much more personal. Uh, but this was a uh, comeback that the Aztecs had against, uh, I believe it was New, it was New Mexico. Uh, the Aztecs had been a top five team most of the year, had fallen to 10 at this point. Uh, this was the last game of the 2014 regular season, not the West regular season, before conference tournament play. Uh, this was the Xavier Thames team, if anybody remembers that. Uh, Xavier Thames, uh, Skylar Spencer was the second best player on the team. Winston Shepard, who's uh, had a pretty successful European international career, but no NBA players, all great college players. The only losses the team had taken at this point were against a uh, one other Mountain West team and against, a at the time, number four Arizona, starring Aaron Gordon. I think this team was better than the Kawhi Leonard team that lost in the Sweet 16 to Kemba Walker. Uh, they, of course, were not losing the Sweet 16 to Aaron Gordon in the rematch in another fantastic game. But this game starts with, uh, with SDSU going down 18 with... I think seven minutes left. The Aztecs switched to a 1-3-1 zone uh, during a commercial break. During that commercial break, the fans chant, I believe that we will win, which of course they chant before every game. And by the way, SDSU owns the trademark to that, not Utah State. Don't let Utah State tell you otherwise ever. Fuck Utah State. <laughs> but in that moment, there's this actual sense of belief that's just completely unearned. They changed the scheme. Uh, they go on a 19-1 to run to take a commanding lead and win the game. Uh, the leader of that 1-3-1 zone was a guy uh, by the name of Dwayne Pauly who had a, uh, actually had a brain, uh, I believe it was an aneurysm, on the court later that year and missed the most of the next season only to come back to the NCAA tournament. Uh, he, it's just a moment that's the reason you watch college sports is for games like that and the reason you watch college sports is for moments like uh, the, this year's first game against New Mexico where the Aztecs uh, started, I believe, a 20-2 run and uh, that's the only reason to have a rivalry is because it'll go badly long enough that once it goes well, it's all of this emotion pours into one moment. I was supposed to be at that game. Unfortunately, I wasn't. Uh, that was one of two ever Aztecs court rushings. I was at the second one. Uh, the second one was for a championship clinched against a much worse team by about 20 points uh, with five games left in the regular season. Not as good of a live moment, but still memorable. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly something about watching comebacks involving a team you really care about um in the moment um i can't think of a lot of them to be honest with you um but yeah i mean that's that's certainly one of the the best moments especially in a situation like that um college basketball i, I think we've already mentioned the goomba Lolly one there's going to be one more at least that appears on on my list um yeah but i uh, have that one up next but march madness is is about the as as good as it gets in terms of drama and just emotion and all that stuff um 
And then it sounds like we both have the same one up next. Um, the, th- yeah. the third one on my list, I actually had it at second, but I'm going to drop it to third because I actually looking at my th- the one I have third, I think that is it's more justified at second. Uh, 2016 Villanova UNC National Championship game. Um, one of my favorite, like favorite, if that makes sense, favorites. Um, Villanova, just a fun team to watch. Jay Wright, just classy motherfucker, like just really lovely guy. Um, super fun to yeah, watch. That, so close, yeah. but never really a contender until this point. Yeah. Nobody really took them seriously, even though they had a great regular season. Villanova, just a super fun. Like they locked people down. They had they were a pretty senior heavy squad. Um, Chicago Bulls legend uh, Ryan Archidiakono, um, Chris Jenkins, who ended up, who was the guy who hit the the game winner, I think shot something like forty five percent from three. Um, I think that was Josh Hart still on that team. Josh Hart, um, Jalen Brunson, um, just completely dominant team. Um, that may have been yeah. I, Mikel Bridges might have been a freshman that year. Um, I'm not sure about that, but. Uh, they were in that year or the year after. Yeah, they they were completely stacked. UNC was also an incredible team though. Um, Luke May, Marcus uh, Page. That might have been the the year Luke May hit, or was that the Deer and Fox year? I'm not sure. That was Luke May hit a big shot in one of those or two years in the tournament. Um, I think that might the, the no, one Luke I'm thinking May of shot, may have yeah, been the, the year after. But championship season yeah. uh, when he hit that shot over the Deer and Fox yeah. Kentucky team. Yeah. yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, a few uh, things I remember about that's another one of those I remember where I was at the time. I was in our uh, ex-roommate, Yon Chamberlain's uh, international house, UCSD, basement floor apartment, uh, watching the game with him and him and uh, Stephen, and then the the shot went in, and uh, great commentary, obviously, to set it up. It's the, this is a very, very good Jim Nance call. Um, I think it's Grant Hill and Bill Raftery, Bill Rafferty, who's also on the call, um, Villanova, I think, is up by three with about three seconds left, um, or, or ten seconds left, I think. And then Marcus Page hits this just bizarre double clutch three to tie the game um, after uh, one of the Villanova players went for a steal for some reason. Um, so he hits this huge three. Um, it's one of those courts that's obviously, and I think it's is it a fo- one of the football stadiums, so it's elevated. Um, yeah. So it's just one of those where the benches are just kind of below the court and the, you can see kind of the benches rise at the time. Um, so Paige hits the shot right in front of the UNC bench, double clutch to tie the game. Um, three seconds left. Uh, Archidiakono brings the ball up the court. It's a really nice crossover right before the halfway line. And then this this guy who's literally shot 45% from three is trailing and no one's even really close to him. And um, I think Grant Hill is just saying he's like just watch Jenkins right before the shot goes up and he gets an incredible look at about a 26 27 footer and it's pretty perfect um and Jay Wright just kind of walks off the court like he'd do after any game one of the great care I don't care coach moments um there's the famous Charles Barkley celebrating obviously because he bet so much money on them um just a lot of a lot of great stuff going on in, in that. There's a one of the, one of my favorite crowd reaction videos um, that I think uh, the NCA put up after that video is of the Villanova uh, in the Villanova Stadium with the Villanova student body. Um, this is the year after Villanova kind of built its own uh, like uh, they built a narrative as chokers. Uh, they've been a one seed the year before, which is where the crying Villanova girls from, uh, where they lose in the Sweet 16 as a one seed. They, I believe they were a one seed three years, uh, two years before that too. So Jay Wright had built a reputation, but then hadn't really hadn't kept capitalized on it, which is very true. Just like of Virginia last year. Yeah, too. I was just gonna say it's exactly like Virginia, and oddly, uh, Jay Wright and um, God, what's the Virginia Virginia's uh, coach name? Anthony Bennett, Anthony but not ben- the Anthony no. Bennett that was drafted yeah. first overall, or the one that we'll, goes we'll by go, Tony Bennett. We'll go Tony Bennett. Um, uh, but yeah, so. Just and then the you know this the arms in the air great great reaction from him um, the confetti uh, there's like a you know cannon shots in the background um, really great call from Nance as well I think um, obviously you mentioned that there's the thing that I remember is Grant Hill just saying just watch Jenkins literally a half second before he gets wide open for this trailing three um, yeah Justin I, Jackson has a great shot right before that too to put. Uh, UNC to tie with UNC. Uh, by the way, you hadn't mentioned him earlier. Justin Jackson, tremendous, tremendous college player. Really, I think underrated. 
uh, was the best player on their title team the next year. But the thing that really sticks out to me about that game is I watched the first half on my laptop in my first ever, because uh, we got at UC San Diego, they have a quarter system, so there are three periods of classes, and this game coincided on the Monday of the first period of classes. So I had my first in a financing, personal finance class that ended up being by far the easiest course I've ever taken in college. And it was supposed to be three hours. I'm very mad I was missing the game. So I was watching it on my laptop for the first hour. Class ends after 45 minutes. I walk back to my apartment at the time. Uh, my roommates are not watching this game. I make them turn it on. I, uh, I watch the entire second half there. One of them leaves with two minutes to go and comes back in the door right as uh, the, the Justin Jackson shot goes in. And they didn't care at any point before this, and they get invested. And it's one of those great moments of watching something that you don't care about become a monoculture, and everybody gets invested. And then the, oh, the Chris Jenkins shots, just one of the most beautiful game winners you'll ever see. Yeah, and, and have really, I don't think, I, I can't think of another shot to win besides the Agbungawale uh, shot that's actually won a title um, right. in that moment. Um, yeah. I mean, which I'm, is why I think your number one is going to be... Uh, is going to be one of these, but the best thing that can happen in the NBA is we've never had a championship winning shot in the NBA, yeah. not a true one, not a game seven type one, right? But there have been serious clinching shots at the end, uh, serious clinching yeah. buzzer beaters, and those are by far the most exciting thing I think I've ever seen in professional basketball. Last year there were two of them. I think we're going to talk about one of those two. Uh, but the one that we're not going to talk about is the Kawhi Leonard shot uh, with the Raptors where it bounces six times. Uh, I'm still mad to this day that we didn't get Raptors, Bucks, and Sixers, Celtics as the finals in that uh, Eastern Conference because those teams hated each other and instead we got the rivalries mixed up. But it was still pretty fantastic to watch such a great Sixers team get destroyed by the most impossible of things. Yeah. Um, so we that was your third as well, correct? Correct. And we've ordered and you you put the um, the kick six at number two. I put the kick six at number two, so I'm not going to go again until what I think okay. is going to be your number two. Well, this uh, is so. This is my so number I'm... two now, and and my number two. I think objectively, if I was being purely objective on greatest sports moments of all time, this would be number one. Um, so then, can I do this one? Sure. Well, yeah, wait, wait. So do you say, do, wait, do you have your number? So you, do you have your number two or no? Do you have two or one more? I guess is my question. This is this is my number one. It's your number two. I think. Uh, I want to. I want to talk about it though. Twenty sixteen NBA Finals games happen. No, right? I don't. I don't have this one on there. You go. You go. Go ahead and do your. Wait, what? You don't have this. I don't on have here? it on there. No. I am shocked. I'll, so yeah, I'll do. Shocked. I'll do my number two real fast. My number two is um, Sergio Aguero versus QPR in the twenty eleven Premier League title. Um, I think again, if I'm being purely objective, I didn't really care who won the title this year is between Manchester United and Manchester City. Um, I know a lot of people don't watch Premier League and may not have been watching it, certainly in 2011. Um, but for those who don't know, this was, I think, the greatest um, television spectacle, the greatest five minutes of sports TV I've ever watched. Um, it, you know, it requires a little bit of context. Um, the Premier League is a, and this is one of the reasons why the Leicester City um, championship in 2016 or 2016 or 2017 2016 i think was is is in my mind the greatest sporting achievement of all time and it's not close um the premier league season is 36 or 38 games um there's four or five six teams that are significantly better than the rest every year um and it requires a level of consistency that's not required in any american sport because of the way that the playoffs are designed in all american sports um, to win the title, you need to be good for 38 games um, to win a title. Um, so, and, and another another result of this system is that oftentimes you don't get the drama that you would have in American sports, which is why the playoff system exists. Um, the exception to this is this moment, and that's why I think it's objectively the number one moment in in that's ever happened in sports. Um, essentially. At this point, have they made the, the conversion where all teams are playing at the same time yes, on the last day of the season? Yeah, which yep. is one of the reasons why this works so well. Um, so to set it up, uh, City was ahead of United by one point, I believe. And this may be wrong, but I believe they were ahead by one point of Manchester United going into the final game of the season. Both teams were playing against relegation candidates, I believe. Um, it's possible both teams may have already been relegated. I'm fairly certain QPR had already been relegated. Um, if not, they were definitely in the bottom uh, 25% of the league. 
Manchester City was playing QPR, um, who had been disaster all year, just been shipping goals right and left. Uh, Manchester United was playing Sunderland, which I actually don't think got relegated that year, but they weren't a very good team. Um, Manchester United uh, is a pretty boring game. Um, they ended up they scored pretty early on. I think Wayne Rooney scored. Uh, they ended up winning one nil in the end. Uh, but City was really shocked. They scored the first goal, but then QPR scored two goals, including the second one, which was after they had gotten a red card. So QPR, um, which stands for Queen's Park Rangers, which is one of the best British sporting names of all time. Very British. Uh, Crystal Palace is another one. Um, They went at least the last quarter of the game with 10 men. Um, I believe they may have scored their second goal with 10 men to put them up 2-1. At this point, United was already ahead, so City knew they needed to win. Um, they go into stoppage time. It's still 2-1 QPR, still at 10 men. Um, this is a Roberto Mancini team. Um, I don't think he had won a title yet. Um, 91st minute, still 2-1. City know they need to win. This is in at the Etihad in Manchester. Um, uh, Ed Dzeko scores with three minutes left, five minutes of stoppage time. He scores in the 92nd minute to tie it at 2-2. Um, but as these games were going on concurrently and United were up 1-0 and didn't seem to be in danger of getting that game tied, City knew they needed two goals. Um, so so Dzeko scores this goal with 92 minutes played. Um, they have three minutes left. They're up against this 10-man relegation team. Um, the United game ends about 15 seconds before the Aguero goal goes in. So they have a, a split screen on, on the NBC Sports of the United players thinking they've won the Premier League, which is the greatest achievement in British sports, um, right. as they walk off the field. And then as Sergio Aguero scores the goal in the 95th minute of stoppage time, um, you can see these players like Wayne Rooney and, the, and Sir Alex Ferguson and all these, all these players uh, react to this, goes up on the, on the score scoreboard and wherever they're playing. I think they were playing either at Old Trafford or in Sunderland. Um, and you can see the moment where they realize Aguero scored. Um, and they've lost the Premier League title to literally their their city in city, in city rivals. Um, so that's moment one, you know, point one why I think this is really top of the top of the table. Um, second great moment is this is a great Mario Bellatelli moment, one of the great kind of misfits ever. Um, he barely gets a touch on the pass that goes to Aguero, about a half inch away from losing the ball and the game being over. Um, Aguero scores um, right in front of the, all the City fans. Um, and then reason number three why I think this is this sh- arguably should be number one, um, just being objective, is because I think it has the best um, announcer call. Classic Martin Tyler, who, of course, is the most legendary soccer commentator of all time, um, does all the FIFA games. He's mellowed down a little bit, but this was a great call by Martin Tyler. Um, it's the famous just Aguero as he scores. Um and then he goes, I swear you'll never see anything like this ever again. Um, drink it in. Um, Roberto Mancini runs about 50 yards down the sideline to celebrate. Um, again, you just have these split screens. You have the Sky Sports and the NBC Sports announcers, shots of them. Um, I don't think there's there's nothing that could ever happen like that in American sports. And that's why I, I would have it objectively at number one. I do have another number one later, which I'm sure people can guess. But... Um, in terms of just moments, I think this tops my list pretty easily. Yeah, that's an interesting one because that's in my top ten, but I was not really invested in it. I only watched it live because I saw tweets about it, uh, and I'm just not that uh, I'm just not that invested in the combination of an asymmetrical championship and the system, uh, the basically the club soccer system in general. I don't think creates these types of moments because there's always this idea that there's three levels of championships. I don't think it creates the moments of significance like the one I'm about to say. I'm not surprised you chose that, but I'm deeply surprised that the one I'm about to say is not on your list. Is there a reason for that? Um, I, the number one reason is that I wasn't rooting for the Cavs, and I didn't really care for that moment. And um, I would actually argue that the Kyrie shot in that game was just as big, if not a bigger moment. Um, so... I've, I've, I get why people focus on that on the for reference the number one moment on Hunter's list is going to be the we'll, we'll, we'll get there we'll get yeah, there we'll, we'll talk about that but I actually think what I remember from that game is yes I remember that block but I remember just the silencer of that Kyrie step back three um, right, well 
If we're yeah. going to talk about actual significance, the most significant play in that game is after either of those when Kevin Love locks out Steph Curry. That's true. That was that was the insane moment that nobody could believe. Okay, well, since, since we're here already, let's go. Let's move on to your number one. Okay. So my number one, by far, by far the best thing I've ever seen on live television is uh, 2016 NBA Finals Game 7, Cleveland Cavaliers, Warriors. Obviously, this is a 3-1 series. Obviously, this is... The game before this is LeBron and Kyrie both get 40. The game before that is the shocking Game 5 win where they get a second technical on Draymond Green that gets him ejected for Game 6. This is the moment where we had already realized the Cavs would win the championship was probably at the end of Game 5 when Draymond's uh, ejected for Game 6. That's when it clicked with me almost immediately that that it was already over. But this was how it happened. 40 seconds left, fast break, Andre Iguodala has the ball. Uh, Iguodala to Curry, Curry to Iguodala, he goes up for the layup, oh, blocked by James, uh, it's the call, of course, and that is, it's the iconic photo, it's the iconic call, it's the iconic moment, it is by far the most amazed I've ever been by an athletic achievement, it was the most shocking thing that could possibly happen, of course, they get the ball back down the court, Kyrie takes a, a transition three over Steph Curry, it's a step back, like you mentioned, that's what puts them ahead, and then next time down the court, Kevin Love locks down Steph Curry, that's what forces the mission, they get another score on the other end, and that's what wins the game, but all before this, it starts with the LeBron block. It's the crowning achievement of the most impressive, the most dominant athlete I've ever seen play. It's the moment where I realized that he was potentially the greatest ever, which is really something I considered seriously up until that point. It was the moment where I, I really saw what it was like for a superstar to control every aspect of a game. And it's why I watch professional basketball. It's not why I watch basketball. I think the 2016 uh, Chris Jenkins shot's a better representation. That's why I watch professional basketball in particular. It's 15 years of narrative about LeBron James building up to one moment. It's the moment when the Warriors, who have as many titles as he does, it doesn't matter to me because that's the moment where they're relegated to nothing more than the foil that loses to him. They get Kevin Durant after that. That's a whole other thing. But that's, to me, that is the culmination of the narrative excellence of sports. It's the best moment I've ever seen live. And it all helped because I was watching it live with Many people rooting for the Cavs and one diehard Warriors fan who was very upset. Yeah, I mean, my, I guess my only response to that is just, I, I think it was a spectacular moment. I, it's certainly the most iconic basketball moment um, of the last decade, certainly, possibly of the last two decades. Um, I guess... It, I guess I think your point about how that was just, that was LeBron's moment, like that was him doing what right. people said he couldn't or, or what he hadn't been able to do um, and winning on a team that was certainly very talented. I think people underrate that Cavs team in terms of how good Kyrie was and how good Kevin Love was, but right. certainly a team that wasn't quite as good as the Warriors team. Um, and it was, it was a really amazing moment. The Mike Breen call, I think, really ups it almost to the point where people remember it almost more for the call than the actual moment, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with it just on a personal level. Um, I didn't care quite as much about the outcome. Um, I think I would put that Kyrie. I was more, I was stunned by the block, but I was more stunned by the shot by the Kyrie shot in the end. Um, I just wasn't ready for him to hit that shot. Um, I didn't think I up till the very last minute of that game. I didn't think the Cavs, or very last second of that game. I didn't think the Cavs were going to win that game. I don't think they. I don't didn't think they could. Um, so I still I, re, I remember that game by the by the Kyrie shots, which is probably the biggest reason why I don't have it up there. But in terms of just sports iconography, I, I think it's total. It should be number one, and I think it is for a lot of people. Yeah, it's uh, certainly at least in American sports, it's the most incredible thing I could imagine happening. It's a playoff series where you've completely written them off, and then the narrative shifts so, so quickly after Game 5 with Green getting into technical. It's just the speed at which it went from another series, uh, another series without a loss for LeBron. This narrative of him being a choker that had really gone away after 2012 had suddenly come back so hard, and then it's all over, and there's nothing he can do at this point to undo what that did to his legacy, right? He, went, he loses another five finals. He's still not the guy that lost the finals. He's the guy that hit that blocked the shot in game seven in 2016 and there's other great a lot of great finals moments like that uh another one that really sticks out to me is the uh uh, dr j up and under layup uh for the sixers first title uh like 
actually, I suppose, only title, uh, where it's a culmination of a, of a career. It's so late in the career. It's such a defining moment representative of what they've been great at for so long. But it's it's the biggest star of the decade in any American sport, doing the most incredible thing you could imagine him doing at the most important time. And that's what sports is about. So yeah. that's why it's my number one. I think that's totally fair. Yeah. Um, for what's it worth, it is on my honorable mention. It also doesn't hurt that there's so many other things associated with it. Like you said, the Breen call. Uh, Kyrie Irving was wearing these insane uh, black shoes with a uh, gold diagonal strap on them uh, that when he does the step back, there's uh, some great four-level videos of where they're just in almost a Jordan-like sense. The sneakers stand out so much. Uh, then obviously Kevin Love locking up Steph Curry after that when we've spent the whole series saying Kevin Love wasn't a really viable third member of the Big Three. Uh, his defense was always supposed to be a liability compared to Draymond. That was supposed to be the reason the Warriors were better. And Steph Curry couldn't get past him. Of course, yeah. the game before this step was so frustrated, he throws in his mouth guard into the crowd, and that's when a lot of general audiences began to turn on him because he had been so Lily White likable before then. And there was this moment where it was, wait a second, this guy has this kind of temper. And all of that culminates in that moment, in that game, in that particular second. And it's not just the game, it's the moment, right? And that's, yeah. I think, what gets all of these events on my list is the moment. Yeah. Well, speaking of moments, um, my number one, I cheated a little bit. I put both the Lillard shots on there. I'm going to focus mainly on the second one. But Right. Um, I'm going to say it's the second one because that's a fair answer. But at the same time, I think the thing about these shots is that, like you said, I think the NBA, there's no sport that does drama quite like the NBA um, just because of the way the sport's designed, uh, the proximity of the fans to the game, um, the commentary tends to be better in a lot of ways, I think, or not better, but just more dramatic. Um, the players that are a part of that just seem to be more culturally relevant than a lot of in other other American sports, even football. Um, and for me, this is this is the the first one. Obviously, we're talking about the Damian Lillard shot in twenty fourteen against Houston. Um, my freshman year of college, um, I was watching it. Um, the, the, in, in our freshman dorm um, with our, our good friend uh, Nick Coe. Shout out Nick Coe. Um, you know, it, it's just one of those moments that the Blazers have been the better team the whole series. The Marcus Aldridge in particular was one of the most dominant like basketball performances I've ever seen, which I think people forget about because of how good the shot was. Um, but the Blazers were really the better team in that series, but they were up 3-2 and there was a sense that if they lost this game, it would go back to Houston and the James Harden and would be able to win it in Houston um, just because of the way the Blazers had failed in the playoffs for so long. Um, this is Damian Lillard's second year in the league, um, which I think is important. He had had, I think, four or five buzzer beaters that year. I don't think I've ever seen anyone hit more buzzer beaters in a single year than he did that year. Um, and the national narrative, he had been obviously fantastic as a rookie in the first half of that year, but the national narrative didn't come to him until January of that year. Uh, heading into the All-Star break was when it really started to pick up momentum that this was that guy that this was a future superstar not yeah. just a great player not a good player. right and and th- so the blazers had he had hit um a shot or i'm not sure if he had a shot i think some someone else some random player on the blazers might have hit a shot right before this that gave the blazers the lead and then um chandler parsons made a layup off um it was a i think it was a harden miss i think west matthews played incredible defense on harden um, who missed about a 17 18 footer um, but the rebound somehow got tapped to Chandler Parsons, who made this wide-open layup with 0.9 seconds left. Um, and then Chandler Parsons got completely burned on the the you know flare screen on the shot where he lowers just running around. I've watched this shot you know upwards of probably three or four hundred times just off off the screen. He's clapping his hands. Nick Batum gives him the ball. And he just hits you know just a perfect shot. Nothing but nothing but net on the on the shot. Um, and there's just the classic, you know, we're going to associate it with Damian Lillard for the rest of his career. He just turns around and just, you know, doesn't, no facial expression at all. Um, Mo Williams is running at him. Aldridge is running at him. Um, you know, just a really, the best sports moment of, of my life up to that point. Um, I think probably the whole of the ERC quad, squad could have heard Nick Coe and I screaming after that shot. Um, and then he does it again four or five years later against Oklahoma City and, um, Somehow, even though it was the first round, I think it's probably one of the most famous NBA buzzer beaters of the last 20 years. Um, well, there's a championship-winning buzzer beater that bounces six times and hangs in the air for four seconds from an arguably more famous player. Yeah. Two series after that, in a more important game, 
and this is still already yeah, more famous. Exactly, which is really incredible, especially considering the smart small market. You know, I think it's. I think a lot of it gets its fame, to be honest with you, because of people really were rooting against Russell Westbrook in kind of a mean spirited way, and people love that this destroyed the Thunder, and um, they love people love Lillard over Westbrook, which I do as well, but. That rivalry was just kind of ended. Paul George too. Don't forget, people were not Paul George fans, right? Um, and I think it's important. The Blazers were the better team this whole series, and it was three one. But much like the Houston game, this was like, oh, if they don't win this, it's going to go back to OKC for Game Six. And then who knows what could have happened? Um, the Thunder were, you know, threatening to expand like a twenty point lead in the first half, and Lillard scored something like thirty five in the first half to just keep them around. Um, There's a great kind of momentum turning run in the latter part of the third quarter a lot of Seth Curry in that game um where the Blazers took about a nine point lead and then started the fourth the Thunder just completely dominated they scored one on about a 20 to 2 run went up by 15 with about eight minutes left and then Lillard just brought him all the way back um made a layup a two for one layup right before the shot um Westbrook missed a layup at the rim after uh Paul George hit a shot um right before the, the previous Lillard layup um, you know, and then he just hits the buries this thirty five footer over Paul George. Um, does the wave? You can see Seth Curry in the corner before the shot goes up, telling the Thunder bench that the shot's going in. Um, obviously the wave. You have CJ McCollum kind of doing the wave right afterwards. Um, the iconic meme, everything. It's just you know, it's undoubtedly the best sporting moment of my entire life, and it's it's not particularly close. I mean, it's. It's probably coming in around seventh or eighth for me, and I was rooting for the Thunder in that series. I like Russell Westbrook a lot, but you can't argue with an excellence of a moment. That's another thing that's just such a culmination of a narrative. This was uh, the whole year, Dame time was a thing. We've already established that he's the best late-game shot hitter in the entire league. Uh, him and Kyrie Irving are probably the two best players in isolation in the league, and he's a much better shooter than Irving in those situations, even given how good a shooter Irving is. So it was just... You know what you're going to get. You know how he's going to do it. You know he's going to do it over stars. But even knowing all of this, you can't expect him to hit that shot over Paul George in probably the second or third best defensive season anybody had had in the league that year. Uh, In that situation, in a game that the Thunder had controlled for so much of it, it was just sensational. And there's also this aspect of the Thunder that year. For the last three weeks of the season, the question is, who's going to draw the Thunder? Because they'd had a bad couple of weeks right before the All-Star break. It had dropped them low enough that everybody knew they were going to be one of the lower seeds. So the, uh, the Rockets were trying to avoid the Thunder. The Blazers were trying to avoid the Thunder. And the Jazz were all trying to avoid the Thunder, even though the Jazz had obviously crushed them the year before. But the Blazers were the one who got the draw. It was considered unlucky by most. And the response to this well, was, we're going to destroy them. And then they destroyed them. Well, this is an important point, too, because, yes, all Blazer fans, except for me, if, if I, I believe the only time I've ever left a comment on a, on an SB Nation post on the Blazers Edge site was when 99% of Blazers fans were angry about getting the Thunder because I think the Blazers had lost three or all I think they got swept in the season series and I was like I'm sorry this just this is like I think you want to play Russell Westbrook in the playoffs Lillard's better than Westbrook he's owned Westbrook you don't want to play the Jazz who have been awesome for the last 15 games um and and I think that came to came to fruition and then I think obviously the, the the biggest moment about this is that that we don't remember is the Anthony Simons against the Kings game um where the right. Blazers were actively trying to lose to avoid the Thunder um and and the Kings were trying to win to get to 40 wins and were up I believe 22 when they pulled their starters I think it might have been more than I think it was like 27 or 28 actually at some point it was and, more than 20 at halftime and they pulled heel yeah when they pulled the stars I'm not sure but then Anthony Simons and ex-king Scalabissier just completely took over I think Simons had 37 in that game um and they ended up winning and getting the thunder and then they ended up that because they got that 2-3 side of the draw and didn't get the Warriors they didn't have to play the Warriors till the you know the Western Conference finals which you know is you know, huge, it's huge sliding doors moment. I also think people talk about how that ended the Thunder franchise. I think we could be looking at that in ten years or five years when, if the Thunder are super loaded, about how that shot actually really helped the Thunder in most ways. Um, with the and, and should be to be clear, it's not because Westbrook can't win a championship. It's because they got back six picks and an All Star level player for Paul George, and then got back three more picks for a guy who didn't help their team. 
and along with those three picks got Chris Paul still in his prime. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not because it's not because those two players are bad. It's because Presti is good at his job. Yeah, so I mean that's all I have to talk about. I think we are about twenty seconds away from hitting that hour mark. So, um, yeah, I can wrap it up now. I think unless you have any last comments. Uh, I just have to say that that Damian Lillard shot is not only exceptional but an all-time great gift. Just all-time great. That reaction yeah. is one of the better reactions there's ever been to anything. And I think I, I, the other thing I would say about that too is that it's it's the first I I'm not an active Twitter presence, but I remember that shot, and then just the the Twitter reaction to it was just and and that as you mentioned that meme and everything about it was just there's a lot of you know just funny funny Twitter moments on there about that shot, and that was always very pleasing to me, but. Yeah, I mean, I think that'll well, that'll oh. end it. Let's 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 maybe some honorable mentions really fast before we leave, since we went into the second hour, anyways. Um, mine are on a personal level, um, the Diego Valeri versus Columbus inside about twenty seconds champion MLS championship game first goal and then the subsequent goal um, inside five minutes that put them up two nil. Um, the Ray Allen three, which we haven't somehow didn't mention. Um, against the Heat, yeah. uh, the chase down blocks that you mentioned, um, and then some games, individual games that weren't specific moments that I think should be mentioned. Uh, the UMBC versus Virginia route, um, the Cubs winning the World Series, um, the Liverpool uh, versus Barcelona comeback in the last year's Champions League final, um, the Pats 28-3 game, um, and then the Minneapolis Miracle was what made my list. I think there's one you're missing right there that needs to be said because it's never going to be on your list, but it's the uh, it's the interception on the goal yeah, line that Marshawn Lynch should have run it in Seahawks Patriots Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Marshawn Lynch, I thought about putting Beast Mode on here as well. Um, actually, surprisingly, one of the ones that I did not, that I, that I was really thinking about that I remember very clearly and distinctly was... Um, the U.S. in the Olympics, I think it was the it was Michael Phelps's when he was the last medal he had to get his record gold medal, the eighth gold medal was the four by something relay, um, and the last swimmer on the U.S. swimming team, the anchor of the 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 team was like two body lengths behind the Australian or the French swimmer and um, just out touched him at the wall, and that was a pretty amazing moment as well. I think there's probably some other Olympics moments that I could put in there as well if I really dug back in my memory, but that's the one that really stands uh, out to me. The first Usain Bolt record setter in 2008, yes, 100 meter dash. Yeah. Uh, that's by far the most excited I've been to see a non-US athlete in the Olympics. It's just that's just exceptional athleticism at work. Uh, going back to other sports, the other ones that really stick out to me that I hadn't mentioned were. Uh, in auto racing, there's the uh, 2007 Brazilian Grand Prix where on the very last lap, it's taken away from Ferrari driver Felipe Massa, who basically was forced into a number one role in a number one team by chance. Nobody believed he was great, but he still had a shot at a title. It was taken from him on the very last lap by one single pass. Uh, he lost it by one point. And there's a video of him already out of the car because he was half a lap ahead of the car that took the championship from him. Watching his championship be taken away from him and just absolutely losing it. And it's just, it's unfortunate because Moss is somebody that I root for, but it was just an incredible moment of human emotion that you don't really get in sports. You don't get to see people accept defeat that often. Uh, the focus is always so much on the victor. Uh, a couple that I really don't think would ever crack anyone else's list that make mine are Beer and Fox's first game winner against the Philadelphia 76ers where he crosses over Robert Covington at the free throw line. And his second game winner, where he comes out of nowhere to out-rebound three Miami Heat players and dunk with 0.2 seconds left, uh, were the two moments when I realized that he was a franchise player, which, considering he's never even been an NBA All-Star, probably doesn't stick out to most people. But I view those in the same way you probably view those first few Damian Lillard game winners. Uh, so those have a personal significance. And I also, uh, Marvin Bagley completed a 360 alley-oop from half-court uh, against the Spurs last year, and I don't think anybody else cares about that but me. I don't even necessarily think Bagley is great, but it was just the most incredible thing I've seen a player do uh, dunking in a game, so that's worth mentioning. And another NBA game that's truly meaningless, uh, back when we thought the Spurs were the best team in the NBA in 2015, 
before Chris Paul stopped them from beating the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals in the first round. Uh, they lost a game to the Cavaliers that went to overtime on TNT. Uh, this was LeBron's first season in Cleveland, but it was a Kyrie Irving game. He had 55, and he had complete control from top to bottom. And Kawhi was already a superstar at this point. Tim Duncan was still relatively important to that Spurs team, but that was LeBron avenging his finals loss through another player, and it was the moment I realized Kyrie could be a championship-winning player, which obviously was realized a year later. What's funny is now I don't actually think that, uh, even though he's already done it. <laughs> Nothing in me tells me that the Nets are going to win a title because of Kyrie Irving. If it happens, it will be because of Kevin Durant and Kevin Durant's open. Yeah, I mean, I think that covers it. I think we went over some most of the moments that I would have thought of. Um, yeah, I mean, if, I think the, the point of this podcast was kind of remember remembering what sports are like and the good good moments in sports, um, what we're missing. Um, but yeah, I think that's all I have. I think we're planning on doing a music-related podcast in the future, and um, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on, on anything before we go? Uh, I miss sports. I miss basketball in particular. I also miss baseball. I've been watching a lot of old baseball, and it's, it's a real bummer that I'm into old baseball now. Yeah. Well, at the video, I think I sent you the video of the all the the person who was playing all the the themes to the playoff NBA playoffs and the March Madness theme and the MLB theme and all of these uh, Olympics theme, all these songs on piano that that were played, um, got me good this morning. So I, I would agree with that sentiment. Um, but yeah, I think that'll be all for today. Um, we'll be back in a week or so.